Okay, thank you. Uh, and thank you, David. And that fellow was Tim Pettinger. You remember Tim Pettinger? And he was given to hyperbole, which means exaggeration, by the way. He says, finishing his sentence carefully. But at any rate, um, well, thank you. And uh, Dave, all, well, I, I would like to, uh, I was going to tattle on Dave, and I thought better of it at the last moment there. But I would like to, uh, to this morning, take the opportunity, which is mine here, so more or less, I want to engage your mind this morning. I don't want to so much uh, get after you or challenge you or teach you. It's just get you thinking about something. And I'm probably going to adopt a, uh, a persona, a role here, which is not altogether appropriate to myself. I really just want to kind of share something with you that means a great deal to me that, that uh, I've done a lot of thinking about. And uh, I don't know that my thoughts are as well-developed or as concrete or as thoroughly... Uh, uh, you know, that, that I can come to any thorough conclusion maybe that I should before I broach it with you. But I'm going to do it at any rate, at any rate, and perhaps just get you thinking about it. Now, what I'd like to talk to you about is a subject which I was really brought up on. Now, I'll tell you something, uh, maybe just by, by way of background so you know where, where I'm coming from and where I have indeed come from. I was uh, reared in a very strong and committed Christian home. My parents were actually saved about the time that uh, that I and my and uh, that my twin sister and I were born, I should put her first. She's the older, but and uh, uh, and and so they sort of grew up in the Lord as we did, and uh, they they uh, became uh, real. They became more committed to the things of the Lord and to the church and so on. About the time we were coming into junior high, and so but but as far as I can remember, as long as I can remember. Uh, our, our whole family life was built around our church and so on, and I praise God for that, uh, needless to say. And, I, and, and furthermore, it, but this is perhaps the point to be made with regard to where I want to go this morning, and that is that uh, the church in which I was reared was a very, very fundamentalist, separatist church. Us four, no more, close the door, I like to say. And, uh, and, and I need to say that I... I, I I just praise God for my upbringing and my heritage, and I honor that church and those people that invested so much in me personally and, and, and prayed over me and, and put up with me and so on. But having said that, I, I have to say that to a certain degree, I think I've abandoned some of the real narrow perspective that they bring to the Christian life. And I, and I don't abandon that uh, uh, flippantly. I respect those people, and it was only with the greatest uh, emotional uh, soul-searching and catharsis and so on that I, that I was able to leave it behind me, if I have left it behind me. And so I guess that's... Am I taking you anywhere? I just I want to think about this whole business of, of separatism. Hey, look at 2 Corinthians 6. And this is the first... Man, I'll tell you, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, uh, a month went by but what I heard a sermon growing up on this verse. I mean to tell you, this was just constantly hammered into us. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17, Come out from among them, saith the hallowed King James Version, right? Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. Quoting the prophet Isaiah to be sure, but this business of coming out and being separate was just drilled into us. And I tell you something, I think... Quite honestly, 
that the concept of biblical separatism or separation is that a, is that is that terminology you even use? Do you think of does that make sense to you? You know what I'm saying? How many of you grew up on that? Honest to goodness, did you? I mean, but but today it just seems like we don't hear hear quite frankly in some circles enough of it. Although in my background, I'd have to confess that I certainly heard enough and perhaps even a little too much. I don't know that you can hear too much of the scriptures. But I wonder if it has been, if the, the concept of, of biblical separation has been accurately and adequately handled. And that's what I'd like to talk about this morning and, and just get you, just sort of stir up your pure minds and get you thinking about it. I, uh, usually separatism or the business of biblical separation is considered in two areas and I'd like to think about both of them this morning. One is personal separation. That is, to what degree does a Christian live under the holy obligation to separate himself from the world? The other is what we might call ministry separation. To what degree do we have a responsibility, a biblical mandate, to separate ourselves from uh, those who reject the pure doctrine of the Word of God as we see it? So let's think, first of all, about about personal uh, you know personal separation, and I would suggest to you and, and clearly the Bible throughout uh, you know we have this verse here we have this passage in in, in Second Corinthians where Paul is talking about uh, being yoked together in ministry with unbelievers and he's saying come out and be separate. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to be separate to be distinct and. Well, there I said it. I think, I think the point, my, my persuasion is that the basic working principle of Scripture is that a believer, a child of God, should be distinct. There should be about you that which distinguishes you from the world. Now, should we take just a moment and talk about what constitutes the world? You know, I mean, John has this concept in 1 John 2, love not the world, the cosmos, and we know that it's not the physical earth, it's not the people who live on the earth that we're commanded not to love. It is this satanic system which is ruled over by Satan and his minions at whatever level, and John characterizes it as being dominated by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Now, we could spend a lot of time on that, but I'm not going to do it simply because I don't think any of us is really troubled over what constitutes the wicked world. I mean, maybe to come up with a generic definition that is not, that is not subject to all sorts of disclaimers and qualifications, that might be tough. But in your life and in my life, there aren't too many times where I'm, where I'm confronted with some choice that I have to make, and I'm really confused about what, what would reflect purity and honesty and integrity and what might reflect wickedness and carelessness and selfishness. Is that fair to say? Are we really tripping over whether or not this or that? I mean, to the degree that there are questionable things, that's a legitimate question, but that's really not where I want to focus our thoughts this morning. I'm saying that a Christian, a believer, a twice-born child of God ought to be distinct. There ought to be that about you which is distinctive. You know, in the Old Testament, God gave Israel this law system. And uh, the law, you know, was, was touched every single area of life, as you know. But perhaps the most distinctive things about the, the law system that God gave 
through Moses, I'm talking about the Mosaic legislation that God gave to Israel, there were two or three things that really dominated the, uh, the, the law system. You know what they were? About three things as far as practice. Again, it touched every area of life. But as far as what it meant to you, you're an Israelite, you're a Jew, you are going to subscribe and submit to the covenant which God made with, with Moses. You're going to be a member of the covenant. What does that mean to you, that you're going to be a member of the covenant community in the Old Testament? Irrespective, by the way, of your spiritual experience. You may be as lost as a day is long, but you want to be a part of Israel and you want to experience and enjoy the blessings that God shows, showers upon Israel. So what does that mean to you? Well, you know what it means, uh, basically, as far as your everyday lifestyle, there are three things. And let's leave out the worship. It means you're going to go to temple and worship and so on. But as far as your everyday lifestyle, the three dominant elements of the, of the, of the Mosaic Covenant are, number one, you're going to circumcise your male children at birth. Number two, you're going to keep kosher in your diet. And number three, you're going to keep Sabbath. Those three things basically are what it is. And the interesting thing, by the way, is that today that's what constitutes a Jew, a Jew in behavior because they don't have a temple anymore. So we usually think of a Jew perhaps in the Old Testament as one who was faithful to the temple services. And to be sure, he should be. But the point is that as far as his lifestyle, the things that really dominated were, number one, he observed circumcision. Number two, he... Uh, he kept uh, Sabbath, and number three, he kept dietary laws uh, very carefully. Now, here's the point, and this is, the, you know, without going through each of those at, at any rate, uh, at any level, here's the point. I think there's a lot of confusion. I, I remember reading a book some years ago, and it's, it's a book that's worth reading, although I think it's uh, laced with some theological, uh, with some flawed theological presuppositions, but it's called None of These Diseases by S.I. McMillan. Ever run across that book? And uh, he actually took that phrase, none of these diseases, out of Leviticus, where God promises that if you will keep the law, I will place none of these diseases upon you. That is, the diseases which afflicted the Gentile pagan peoples and so on. And he says, if you'll obey the law. And so Macmillan's proposition in this book is that if we would go back, and he, by the way, is, in, is a medical doctor. So he's writing out of that frame of reference. And uh, he's also a flaming Arminian, but uh, you know, he's writing out of that reference too. Flaming, you know, but... Uh, but, but that's where you've got to be careful as you read the book. But, but the point is that uh, he goes back to these Old Testament uh, uh, commands concerning diet, even concerning Sabbath-keeping and so on, and tries to build the case that the, the reason that obedience to those laws would result in a healthy life that you would not have is, is simply natural, that if you don't eat pork, you won't get sick, that if you uh, rest one day in seven, you won't have heart attacks and so on. The point of which is, here's where I'm taking you as far as this morning is concerned, the point is he seems to be trying to build a case that the whole basis of the law of God was that, uh, or at least the, the, dominate, the, the, the dominant basis, was that if you obey this, you'll have a healthy life, just a natural connection. Well, I think he's dead wrong in that. And uh, although there are some natural and spontaneous health-giving or... or, or uh, yeah, health-giving uh, results to keeping certain of the laws and so on. Uh, there's another book which some of you have read because I made you read it, and uh, uh, it, I really recommend it. It's called This Is My God. It's a book by Herman Woke. Uh, most of you know Woke at another level. He's a, he's a Jew, an author. He's, uh, uh, he wrote uh, War and Remembrance and Winds of War and uh, Kane Mutiny and Youngblood Hawk and all those, and he's just a, a novelist. But he's also a functioning, thinking, practicing uh, Orthodox Jew. And he, uh, 
He wrote a book called This Is My God, and in this book, he makes the point that I think marvelously, now watch this, this is where I'm taking with all this, that when you think about those three areas of law uh, of life, what you eat, the way you live out your daily schedule, and even the, the circumcision of your male children, which has rather profound, uh, well, you know, it, it really is, is a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a mark of distinction which in the minds of many uh, caused a, a, a man, I know some of you are saying, well, who's going to know who's circumcised and so on. Look, you, you're talking about the ancient world where, where bathing was done in public places. It was all chaste and men with men and so on and women with women. But as a result, for, for a man to be circumcised, if you don't mind the temporary indelicacy here, but for a man to be circumcised was in the mind of the pagan world to, to one degree or another, surrendered some degree of his, his machiness or something. As a result, it was a real stigma. And down through the years, it has been that. And, uh, and, and when it came to the dietary laws, and here I go back to my point that I never finished, David, and that was that Woke makes this point that every one of these areas, what it did, and think about this, what the law did by demanding that the male children be circumcised, by demanding that your diet be, circumscri- uh, that it be circumscribed by all of these rules about what you can eat and where you can eat and how much you can eat, uh, you know, how it's got to be prepared, and, uh, and, and, and the Sabbath is, it made you different. Woke says he gives his own testimony. And as a, as a Jew, by the way, he's not a Christian, but, but he says that when he uh, uh, became a, uh, a writer, he moved to Hollywood and, and he was raised in Brooklyn, but he moved to Hollywood and tried to break into the, and did ultimately break into the TV industry and so on. And when he did that, uh, all of a sudden, every, you know, if every, every day, if he just got up with some of his friends and uh, went to lunch, when they sat down to eat, he would have to be very, very careful. There are certain places he wouldn't even go into. And he'd have to be very careful about how he ordered. And he'd have to sit there and struggle with himself. And, and the struggle was basically, do I want to just fit in? Do I, do I just want to be one of the boys? Or do I want to announce quietly here and implicitly that I'm a Jew? And so the point is, the dietary laws, the, the fact that, that, that on Sabbath you couldn't travel, today on Sabbath you can't flip an electric light switch on if you're a Jew, it makes you... Dis- See, the point is, there is something that God has integrated, has insinuated into the very fabric of your life, which will tell everybody that you are His by reason of a distinct lifestyle. You see what I'm saying to you? I'm suggesting to you that a Christian ought to be distinct not only because there is that which he won't do. There are, maybe you say, well, well, people ought to know that I'm a Christian because, you know, I don't do hard drugs. Well, there are a lot of people who are, have no testimony whatever, who have no claim to Christianity, who think Christianity is foolishness. And yet they have their own set of reasons for not doing hard drugs. You see what I'm saying to you? I believe that what the Bible demands of us when it says that we ought to be separate, I think that rather than than just that being negative and thinking in terms of getting away from a certain set of behavioral things that uh, we regard as worldly, we need to realize that there should be that about us which is absolutely distinct. And whether it be our, 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 our demeanor, our reaction to people, there ought to be that. I tell you what it ought to be, by the way, is the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit ought to so permeate our lives that not only negatively... Are we holy in the sense that there is this set of behaviors that we uh, avoid, but also there is a peace and a joy and a, a, a love about us which absolutely couldn't be counterfeited in any way. Uh, it has to be the work of the Spirit. 
Now, that's not where I want to take you with those. That makes sense to you, though? I'm just saying, rather than thinking of separatism, and this is what I was reared on, as nothing more than avoiding certain behaviors, let's think of it as distinctive. A Christian should be distinctive. And I don't know how to define that. I think there are a couple of, of extremes we have to stay away from. I'm very, very skittish about the concept of balance. I think balance has become a strange fetish today that uh, uh, usually means vanilla, you know. I, I just think that... Uh, uh, and part of the reason, by the way, I'll just tell you that, that I, I decided to address this morning is I, I really... I, I, my impression is that evangelical Christianity has given itself over to what I regard as terminal fuzziness with regard to lifestyle. We just fit in. We're just fuzzy. we just kind of maybe a little different, but not too different. We don't want to stand out from the crowd. We want to pretty much fit in. Oftentimes, by the way, in the name of evangelism. Well, let's look as much like we can, like, as we can like these people. We'll be better. You know the verse that's always used in that regard, by the way? He says wandering around. Is that 1 Corinthians 9 passage. Uh, I became all things to all men, or that by, some, by, by any means I, I might win some. Remember that passage? Folks. Put that passage in its context. Paul, guess what? Here, write this down somewhere. This is important. 1 Corinthians 9 comes after 1 Corinthians 8. Don't really write that down. I'm kidding. But, but the fact of the matter is that 1 Corinthians 9 is, a, is, 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 is carrying on the, the, the thought of 1 Corinthians 8. You tell me, what's Paul dealing with in 1 Corinthians 8? What, that's great, what great issue is at stake there? Remember? That's the meats passage. Eating meats which, is, which are offered to idols. And what does Paul conclude in that passage? That though he has a right to something, he will willingly abandon what is rightfully his for the sake of winning someone else. And that's what he means, and he gives an illustration of that in chapter 9 and develops it, and then he concludes by saying, uh, I, I am willing to become all things to all men or that I might save some. Now what he means when he says, I'll become all things to all men is, I will surrender what is rightfully mine in order to have an impact. Now, you see you see how thoroughly we've stood that verse on its head, that principle on its head, when we suggest that what he means is, I will take to myself liberties which the Bible denies me. I'll live in a way which is, which is offensive, to, which, which, which compromises the standards of Scripture in order to, to save some. See, Paul is not talking about taking to himself something that doesn't belong to him. He's talking about willingly giving away something, surrendering something that does belong. There's a, there's a world of difference between those two. So come way back to my thought. I, I, what I'm saying is I think that the evangelical world is, is, is sort of uh, uh, committed itself to a terminal fuzziness about its testimony that chagrins me something awful. And I believe, as I say, that, that Christians ought to be distinct. I think that's clearly the teaching of Scripture. But on the other hand, sometimes it's hard to know uh, exactly how to define that in all of its particulars. I think you're wise to err on the side of safety in that regard. But I, I, there's a lot more I was going to say. Let me just say this real quickly. Am I making any sense to anybody? Uh, what can you say? Uh, look, the, the, the one thing I would suggest to you is this, with regard to personal separatism. I think it is so important to avoid either the, the extreme of, 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 of the libertine, the antinomian, you remember the heresy of antinomianism against the law, who said that grace means that we can live any way we wish, that God's grace means that we are absolutely free from not only the Mosaic law, but from any law. And there are those in evangelical circles today who seem to feel that any standard, any law, 
any any uh, criterion of, of 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 behavior is somehow a violation of the spirit of grace. Sometimes that spirit even comes up at the old master's college, doesn't it? If you got any rules, you don't believe in grace. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. I trust you understand it. And the libertine spirit is the spirit that says that uh, because we are under grace, we can do anything. We can live any way we want. We have no laws. Well, obviously, I trust you understand that that's nonsense. There are moral standards in the scriptures, and sometimes there are standards which are demanded by a given situation, which may not be hard and fast moral standards, but they're they're very legitimate and they need to be honored. So, on the one hand, I think we need to avoid the the, the tendency of the libertine. On the other hand, we need to avoid the tendency of the of the legalist. And and you know, I think legalism, by the way. Let me just deal with that real quickly. We, you, have, you have an absolute, you know, we, we struggle over what is legalism. And a lot of people have the idea, as soon as you make a law, you're a legalist. As soon as you say, I'll never do this, you're a legalist. Well, that's not true. We know that. I mean, you got, you know, Exodus 20. Those aren't exactly ten suggestions there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, God gives you some laws and says, live up to them, you know. So, so obviously, there, 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 there can be, but what is it that constitutes a legalist? What makes me a legalist? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I can tell you, because... I think rather than, let's, let's change our term here, rather than thinking in terms of a legalist, think in terms of a Pharisee. Now, you know, Pharisee is part of what J.I. Packer calls the vocabulary of insult. You know, you call somebody a Pharisee and you just know very well going in, you haven't paid him a compliment. Nobody wants to be called a Pharisee, right? And all of us have a very, very negative attitude toward the Pharisees. We read the New Testament, we have a very negative attitude toward the Pharisees. But I'll tell you something, it's, and, and I think appropriately so. But what is it that constitutes a Pharisee? Well, I think you have to trace them to their history. The Pharisees, as any of you who has sat through my New Testament survey course ought to know, uh, the, the Pharisees arose during the intertestamental period. And they arose over one issue. And that issue was? Anybody? Come on, you can get up and leave. You can tell me this. You already know this. Okay, you've got to stay. Hellenism. Uh, the, the, it arose over the issue of Hellenism. Remember during the, the intertestamental period, uh, the Greeks uh, invaded Israel and they took over the Mediterranean world. And uh, Alexander the uh, Great had this policy of Hellenism, that is, imposing uh, Greek culture upon all of society. And without tracing the whole thing, it comes down to the Syrians and the, the Seleucids and Antioch, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and so on. But the great issue, just stay with me on this, the great issue of the intertestamental period was, in Israel now, the, the, our Gentile overlords, those who are in control, those who, who can determine how happy our lives are, they want us to abandon Judaism. They want us to embrace a Greek culture. They want us to stop uh, uh, worshiping on the Sabbath. They want us to, to burn incense to Greek gods. They want us to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, not go to temple and so on. They want all the things that are precious to Jews because they're precious because the Old Testament says do them. They don't want us to do that anymore. So now there seemed to have been two parties, and this is a little oversimplified, but basically it'll work, honestly, historically. You had the Pharisees who said, absolutely not. We'll not do it. And no matter what the cost to us, we are going to maintain our allegiance to the law which God has given us. And then on the other hand, you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducean spirit was, hey, listen, why rock the boat? Just go along, you know, I mean, what's it going to cost us? So we don't go to temple for a little while. We'll just, so we burn a little incense to a Greek god. Is it really that important? Now, folks, let me just ask you, which is the more noble response, the Pharisee or the Sadducee? Had you been living 100, 200, 300 years before Christ and you'd confronted that before God, which would you like to think that you would have done? You see? So what, I'm, what I want you to see is that the Pharisees were absolutely noble in their beginnings. 
the Pharisees have to be honored in their, in their genesis, in their origin. But this is what happened. The Pharisees, as a matter of fact, their watchword was, if we cannot protect our cities, literally what they said was, if we cannot build a wall around our cities, we'll build a wall around our law. And the Pharisees began to get more specific about the law than the law was. In other words, I always use this illustration, maybe you heard me do it before, but real quickly, they, the law says, for instance, that you can do no work on the Sabbath. But it really doesn't define what work is. And the Pharisees decided in the interest of keeping the law, we better be more specific than what the Bible is. So, for instance, they came up with literally hundreds and hundreds of laws. You know, a woman was, according to the Pharisees, a woman could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because if she did, she might see a gray hair. If she saw the gray hair, she would be tempted to pull it out and that would be reaping. Uh, you could, you could, no okay, kidding, now this is, this is all to tell me. You could carry a chair across a dirt floor on the Sabbath, but you couldn't drag it because if you did, that would be plowing. You'd leave a furrow and that would be plowing. You could spit on the Sabbath, but you couldn't dig it in with your toe. That'd be digging. Uh, you, you, uh, Tailors would carefully inspect one another uh, before the sun went down on Friday to see if maybe they had inadvertently left a needle. Like sometimes as they were work, they'd just stick a needle in their, in, their, in their garment. And if they were to do that on the Sabbath, you, you, they'd be bearing a burden. And you can't bear a burden on the Sabbath. You, can't, you couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. You'd be bearing a burden. So on and on and on and on. And they had literally just hundreds. They used to sit around and argue about whether or not you should eat an egg which was laid by a hen on the Sabbath because the, the, you know, the, the hen had to, had to work and all this sort of stuff. Well, the point is, now, now here's the point. You see what's happened here? The, the Pharisees have a noble goal, and that goal is to honor and protect and obey the law. The, the strategy that they have adopted is to be more specific than the Bible is about what constitutes obedience to the law. Now, folks, let me just make a real simple application in my own background uh people would 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 go to the bible and they'd find a command such as we read here at the beginning be separate and they would say the 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 the, the, the responsibility of the believer is to be separate that's fine but then they would go the next step and they would say what that means is you never go to the movie house now, that's a big thing with me i the, the, you know i i saw ben hur when i was I don't know how old, like junior high. Last movie I saw till I moved to Godless, California. And uh, and by the way, I don't think my moral or intellectual growth was, in, you know, particularly stunted by the, uh, you know, by the, uh, you know, the refusal. But nonetheless, uh, but 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 the point is, is it wrong? See, here's here's where I'm taking you. Was it wrong for the Pharisee to say? I'm not going to, you know, because I want to be so careful about the Sabbath. I'm not going to drag a chair across a, a, a floor on a Sabbath. Was that wrong? I don't think so. See, it's not wrong to say, well, I want to, be specific, I want to be very, very careful about biblical standards. But where you cross the line, where you have done, I believe, wickedly, is when you take your man-made standards. See, because the Bible doesn't say don't drag a chair across a floor on a Sabbath. But when you raise that to the level of thou shalt observe the Sabbath to keep it holy, you see, you've done wickedly. You've got no right. You've got every right to say, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to be so careful. I don't want to even drag a chair across the floor. But it's another thing to say uh, that my rule is as important as the Bible rule. And I'll tell you, I have a, an absolutely dependable litmus test 
to determine whether or not you have taken your rule and raised it to the level of the Bible. And that is, do you expect other people to live by your rule? See, it's one thing for you to say, I am not going to drag that chair across the floor. It's another thing for me to say, for instance, you're wicked if you drag, because the Bible doesn't say anything about that. That makes sense to you? Now, that's what Phariseeism, that's what, now, I don't think you're a Pharisee. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They took their man-made rules, they raised them to the level of Scripture by imposing them upon everybody, although I don't think that's what makes you a Pharisee. I don't think you're quite a Pharisee yet. What makes you a Pharisee is when you become so proud of the fact that you obey all of these laws that other people don't. Now, that's the New Testament picture of a Pharisee, isn't it? You have all these people who have all of these laws that are not in the Bible. They go around, they say, Hey, Jesus, how come your, your disciples eat with unwashed hands? Remember that in Mark 7? I used to, I was telling somebody not too long ago, I used to, when I was in college, I, I had a job and I, I, you know, we had a evening meal, sit down type thing, and I couldn't make it so I'd eat with the workers. And there was this guy, George, sat next to me, and he worked at a small machine shop. And I don't believe they had running water in that small machine shop, you know. And, and he made no stops between there and supper. And he'd always show up with these filthy, grimy, greasy hands, you know. And it was always, here, have a, have, a, have a roll, Doug, you know. And I'm like, oh, man. So when I'd read that passage, you know, I, I was kind of on the side of the Pharisee. Hey, Jesus. Eat with unwashed hands. No, there was well, nothing wrong with washing. Well, the Old Testament says you should eat with clean hands. But that's not what they were talking about. See, because the Pharisees, they couldn't leave that alone. And so what they did is they said that if you're really eating with clean hands, you'll wash your hands after so many bites. So when they'd say, they have a little bowl there, and then and they did it, count their bites. They make a big deal about counting their bites, and after so many bites, they'd always, you know, wash their fingers, and then they'd have to dab them in such a way, and if the water ran down because it was soiled water, then they'd have to get up and change the bowl, and all this sort of stuff. And that's and, and that's what the that's what the Pharisees were getting after the disciples over, see? So the point is, you think of the Pharisees in the New Testament as these guys with all these man-made rules and they're so proud of themselves and they think themselves so righteous because that's what, that's what legalism is. Folks, where am I taking you? Legalism is not obeying rules. Legalism is not even having a set of standards that you live by that you can't necessarily document in the Scriptures. You know, there may be some things that I say, listen, I can't prove to you in the Scriptures. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't go here. But uh, given the fact that, that it just seems to me to be a compromise or at least a, a potential uh, 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 compromise of some biblical standard or it has the wrong impact on me, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I don't think I'm a legalist at all. Now, if I ask you to live by that standard, then I think I'm becoming a legalist. That's the point. But I just don't want you to get the idea that in the name of avoiding that, that horrific monster called legalism, we should never have any standards for ourselves. You should have standards. And the Bible is not a book that, you know, you can just look under every conceivable uh, moral or behavioral subject, you know, in the, in the index and, you know, look under movies and see, thou shalt or thou shalt not. It's not that kind of book. And uh, you're going to have to apply. So I'm saying I think you're going to have to struggle. And I think you should with this whole issue of you need to be distinctive. You need to be, if you don't mind, separate. There needs to be that about you which sets you apart. And many times that'll mean that as various uh, uh, various issues arise as to conduct and dress and you know and it evolves. I mean, I, I remember in, in our college, I got to be done here. I remember in our college uh, up in Minnesota having a guy come and just rip and snort against uh, wire rim glasses. Why, if you wear wire rim glasses, you child of the devil, you know. And 
and uh, just carry on. And I thought it was kind of silly at the time, to be honest with you. But I mean, I know where he was coming from. There was a time when, when uh, you know, the generation sort of was represented by that beat look and so on in the 60s. You don't remember the 60s over well, but uh, um, that's where I grew up. But the point is simply, uh, uh, and I think it was wrong of him to impose that standard generically, but there are going to be issues that arise. You're going to have to struggle with them. Let me say, just real quickly, and with this I'm, I'm going to be very, very quick. I, on the one hand, you have this business of personal separation. The Bible command is come out, be separate. I think you could represent the word be distinct. I think you need to commit yourself to distinctiveness so those who know you and not even very well. There ought to be that about you which just sort of hangs out, which makes it makes itself known uh, very, very quickly that you're different, that you're distinct, that you belong to the Lord. There is also this matter of of, uh, of uh, ministry or, uh, ministry separation. I just there's one thing I want to do. Take your Bible and go to Acts 15, if you will. Just just one point, very quickly. I I think that the evangelical world, the two things, the two uh, observations that animated me here this morning as I as I got up here and began to blather, if you don't mind, is that, number one, it seems to me that the evangelical world is committed to a sort of a terminal fuzziness, trying to be, try, almost deliberately, trying to be fuzzy enough in our testimony that we won't right away stick out. Isn't there almost a tendency? Am I missing? Am I the only one who sees this? You almost don't want people to know. You hope that people won't notice that you're a Christian. So I, that, that concerns me. And then secondly, it seems to me that in the name of unity or whatever, that the Christian world is, is, is given to a sort of a terminal uh, wishy-washiness in doctrine. And by the way, for this, for this, and for, for this is one among many, and this isn't, he didn't ask me to do this and he'd be embarrassed to have me do it, but th- for this reason, I, I so honor our President, Dr. MacArthur. I think he is the single most important theological bellwether, bellwether in America today and in the world today. Because he is willing to take a stand in the trenches on things that are important to him, and I don't, I don't necessarily entirely embrace every stand that he takes. But you look around at Christian leaders and their commitment to just, just you know, going along with anything and never spitting into any wind, if you don't mind. Uh, and, and it just seems to me that uh, you know, Dr. MacArthur happily stands out. But even at that, very quickly, it seems to me, and I've struggled with this. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm the only guy who has, and you just have to put up with it for a minute. But I'll tell you something. I've struggled with this whole question. If there are things in the Scriptures over which we ought to separate, if there are truths, there are doctrines where we ought to say, uh, you're a heretic, I can't work with you, or, or you know, I just disagree with you on this, uh, how do you define what those are? Has that ever troubled you? I had a good friend, best preacher, I mean, other than Dr. MacArthur, of course, but best, you know, my favorite all-time preacher, good friend of mine, who preached a sermon one time, on, uh, he called it the need to say no. And it was basically what I'm talking about this morning, how important it is to be willing to say, no, I'm not going to work with you, you're wrong, you're a heretic, I'm out of here. And I went to him and I said to him, Doug, that's, that's fine and wonderful and I agree with everything you say in that sermon, amen and amen, but have you ever preached a sermon called the need to say yes? In other words, if there are things where we ought to separate, isn't it true that there are things where even though we disagree, we really ought not to separate? Well, where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? I'm glad you asked. Now, you know, I, I've, I've actually researched this. I've done some reading, and I, and, and, and I could give you some historical background and so on. And when I, interestingly enough, when we were living in Dallas for three years, the, 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 we, we became part of Southern Baptist Church, and the Southern Baptist Church was, the whole convention was going through this great fight over inerrancy and so on. And I, I enjoyed the living daylights out of it. I, mean, I, went to, I went to, remember when W.A. Criswell was here last year? Was that a kick? He's coming back, by the way. 
We're going to get him again, aren't we? But uh, uh, I just remember, I remember we went to a, there was a big preacher's convention. And uh, actually it was, it was, do you remember this? Do you follow this at all? Sometimes it was the shootout in Dallas. And it was the big fight where they were going to have this big fight over inerrancy. And uh, there were more people there than there were, the Republican convention had been just a couple months earlier in the same building. And the Baptists had more people there than the Republicans had. And all the taxi drivers were mad. They said those Baptists come to town with uh, 20 bucks in one pocket and the Ten Commandments in the other, and they leave town and never break either one. <laughs> but, uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, but, uh, but they had a, a, a meeting the night before the big thing where, where, where W.A. Criswell preached, uh, preached uh, his sermon, and the name of his sermon was Whether We Live or Whether We Die. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Uh, and we were sitting in this huge hall. I mean, he was a blip on the horizon. They had these big screens everywhere, you know. And uh, it's the only time, those of you know, my, my sweet wife, is the only time she ever really, you know, got the spirit. I mean, I mean, I looked, I was, I was, I mean, this, you know, he, W.A. Criswell, he, he was getting us pumped for this meeting. Thing. And uh, I was up saying, hey, amen, amen. I looked and my wife was standing on the chair. She was standing, <laughs> she was standing there, hey. So uh, I was surprised. But, you know, what's the point of that? The point is simply that, that I, I have lived through uh, situations, uh, I haven't been all that intimately involved, but certainly at, at least as an observer, where I watched men take a stand over and take a costly, dear stand. I mean, a dear in the sense of expensive that cost them heavily uh, but to take a stand and to separate from what they regarded as untruth and, and, and heresy. And, and God be praised. That's important. So, I mean, there is a time when we have to say no, and there's also, there are other times when we ought to say yes. And so I've struggled with, with how do you, what, is there a working set of criteria? Is there anything that we can apply generically to the issue? And very simply, let me tell you where I've come. And this is only by means of suggestion. Matter of fact, if this means anything to you, I'd love to see you take it and chew on it and come back to me and let's talk about it sometime, because I don't know uh, how, how, how well this will work. But I have adopted this and operated on this basis for some years. And that is simply this. I'll ask two questions. This is my what I call my dogmatism index. How dogmatic can I be? How ugly? You know, being dogmatic means you take a bite out of somebody if they give you trouble on this thing. So you're, as opposed to catmatism, which is where you're willing to pussyfoot around. So you guys, <laughs> catmatism. I made that word up. But, uh, but the point is, uh, uh, you know, how dogmatic am I going to be? How ugly spirit? How, how, you know, am I going to really, uh, you know, castigate somebody and denounce him and so on if he disagrees with me? And it seems to me that there are two questions you ought to ask about an issue very quickly. Number one is the question, and these are, by the way, these are very generic, very generic. I want this to be able to apply to all questions. Number one, how explicit is the Bible about this issue? Does the Bible actually explicitly address this question? Does it address it clearly? Now, that's to my satisfaction. I mean, I'm not saying to the world's satisfaction. But I'm saying if I'm going to get ugly with somebody, it ought to be on the basis of Scripture and not on the basis of some impulse that I have. So I ought to have pretty significant level of confidence that the Bible actually explicitly speaks to whether or not I can, you know, whether, whether to, to this issue. That's why I can get real ugly, if you don't mind, about the deity of Christ. But I'm probably not going to get quite so ugly about, for instance, who the Antichrist is going to be. You know, I had a good friend, pastor of mine actually, who believed that Judas was going to be the Antichrist. He had this big spiel, and he'd give you all these arguments, you know, haven't I chosen you twelve, and one of you is ha, diabolos, the devil, you know, and, and uh, Judas died and went to his 
own place, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and and that's all right. That's all right. I don't happen to believe it, but but uh, uh, I don't think the Bible's all that explicit about who the Antichrist is going to be. I think it's rather explicit about the deity of Christ. See the point? So I ask this question. First of all, how explicit is the Bible about the issue at stake? Secondly, in my dogmatism index, think about this. Are we dealing with something that ultimately transcends the human the ability of the human mind to understand. There are an awful lot of things in Scripture that we have to admit that we cannot fully understand. Can we acknowledge that? So maybe we're dealing with something that is is beyond our ability to fully understand and we all try to fill in some of the gaps and maybe you emphasize free will a little more than I do. Maybe I emphasize sovereignty a little more than you do. But as long as we're not violating that to which the Bible explicitly speaks, I think there is room to get along. That makes sense to you? So I'm saying I believe you ought to take a, a strong stand on behalf of the truth of Scripture, that in your ministry you ought to protect it and surround it, you ought to give yourself to it, but you ought to realize that there are some times you turn you to Acts 15. You know what, I've, I've got to be done, but I'll just tell you the story. You know the story. In Acts 15, you have the falling out between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Dave alluded to this the other day briefly, but you have that, you know, Barnabas had gone on the first missionary journey, and then in the midst of the work, he had defected. He had gone back. He went not with them to the work. We're never told why. There are different conjectures as to why. But however you like it, clearly, uh, uh, John Mark. Did I say Barnabas? Barnabas went with Paul. They went the whole distance. They were, they, 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 but John Mark had gone on that first missionary journey, and John Mark had gone back. And uh, as a result of that, when Paul and Barnabas sat down to, to, to plan the second journey, Barnabas said, listen, I think we ought to take John Mark with us. Paul said, oh, no, we can't take him with us. This is too strategic, and if we take him, uh, and he defects once again, it'll cripple us once again. We just can't do it. And the Bible says that the contention was so great between them that they went their separate ways. And he uses the word in the King James contention. Now, the interesting thing is that, that you can build a case on both sides. Of course, what, what, what interesting connection do you have between John, Mark, and Barnabas, remember? They were related. They were either cousins or uncle-nephew. The word's a little ambiguous. But the point is, you can just hear Barnabas saying, Paul, I know this boy. I love this boy. He's my sister's son. And, and, and if we abandon him now and refuse to take him, we'll, we'll just traumatize him, and he may be lost to the ministry. And you can hear Paul on the other hand saying, Barnabas, you know, blood's thicker and water, and you're not seeing this thing straight. You're getting all confused because he's your relative. And the fact of the matter is that we can't have a kid along with us. He's already proved that he can't be trusted. And this is too strategic. We're, after all, laying the foundation for the church. Uh, we, you know, and you could build a case on both sides. Now, the interesting thing, with this I'm done. You know, I read a thing one time. It said, I don't remember, I think it was Reader's Digest. How's that? I'm preaching Reader's Digest. But it just stuck with me. It said, if, if, the, only, if the only tool you got in your toolbox is a hammer, you tend to treat every problem as if it were a nail. You know, and you just go banging on everything. And I think some people treat all doctrinal differences... Like the only thing they got is a hammer and they're going to beat somebody up over it. The fact of the matter is, here's where I'm taking you. Paul and Barnabas disagreed so violently that they came to a mature and lovely decision not to work together. They, and I think their spirit was, listen, we really can't agree on this. There's plenty of work to go around. Barnabas, you take John Mark and you go back. You know, on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas went to Cyprus and Galatia. So they split the territory. Paul says, I think, uh, it's not in the record, you know, but I think this is evidently what happened. Uh, uh, Barnabas, you take John Mark and you go to Cyprus. 
and that's your home anyway, and I'll pray for you, and I hope you're right, and I'll, 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 just, I'll just delight in every good thing that comes your way. And Barnabas would say, well, Paul, why don't you find someone else, maybe a Silas, and you take Galatian. You go to Galatian, we'll pray for you. You see the point? And, and I think, by the way, according to the indications of Scripture, who is right, Paul or Barnabas, about John Mark? Barnabas probably was, because later on, Paul writes and he says, bring John Mark with you when you come to see me, because he's profitable to me in the ministry. But, but, but the point is that the tendency on the part of some in the name of separation over every issue is to, I mean, today, if, if Paul and Barnabas were working in the circles in which I was reared, they each would have started a newspaper, they would have called each other names, they would have drug up all sorts of dirt, they'd have, you know, and you'd have had some big thing that would have showed up in the pages of Christianity today. So I'm just saying, I think, A, that both... Okay, come way back to it. The Scriptures command that we be separate. I think we have the obligation to be both personally, behaviorally distinct, avoiding either a libertine or a legalistic mentality, but being distinct nonetheless, and sometimes that will involve objective standards. And by the same token, I think that we have the responsibility to be doctrinally pure, Separate. That's the context of 2 Corinthians. Come away from those unbelievers. Don't be yoked up with them. But by the same token, I think that in doing it, it is our obligation to do so in a way that always manifests the fruits of the Spirit and, all, and is always concerned for ministry. I always say, be as jealous of your ministry as you are for the truth. And I think God will honor us for it. Well, I hope there's some help in that. Let's have a word of prayer and I'll quit. Our Father in heaven, again, we do thank you so much for your call upon our lives. And Father, we realize that before you did indeed call us first of all to yourself through your spirit and then call us to ministry, we were indeed on our way to a Christless hell. And Father, now we have been called as your servants, but we didn't give up anything but a spot in hell in order to be your servant. And so, Father, we can't take any glory if we do all that's required of us. We're simply uh, servants, unprofitable servants, but Father... We delight in the calling which you have placed upon our lives, and we count it a privilege. And Father, I'd pray that as we live in the midst of a fallen world and as we struggle with the fallen man or nature who indeed yet afflicts us, that Father, you might remind us constantly of what a privilege it is to be called as a child of yours. And Father, might we happily and enthusiastically and carefully frame our lives in such a way that we would stand out that we would be loyal to what your word says, and then, Father, that we would stand out distinctively as belonging to you. And I pray, Father, that as the, as the semester winds down and as there are many tensions and sometimes people get tired and perhaps it'll be a little harder to maintain a spiritual outlook on things, that you might protect us, help us to minister one to another. And, Father, in all things, might we, again, give ourselves uh, back to you, realizing that we've been bought with a price in our job, our responsibility, our, our opportunity is to glorify you in all things. Thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're done.